unique yet common sense opinions on sports. This is Jeff Allen Sports Talk. Coming up on this week's show, we are going to talk bobsledding and curling, some Olympic winter sports. John Macchione and Mallory C. are my guests. They are standing by in the virtual green room, and they will join me to talk about bobsledding and curling on this episode in just a few moments. But first, I am going to fanboy for UCF softball as they are playing in the Super Regionals of the NCAA Tournament. The Knights getting to host a regional for the first time in their history, and they did it in style, sweeping their way through the regional. But congratulations, your award for that is number one, Oklahoma. (laughs) The best team in, in college softball by far. They are way above everybody else. They've only lost twice all season. They've run-ruled victory, uh, what, 37 times out of their 50-something wins. So this is a huge, tall order for UCF. But, you know, maybe Oklahoma comes out a little flat, a little laissez-faire. Maybe the Knights can steal the first game. Beating them twice will be monumental, but it's why they play the games. And, you know, typically I don't like to settle for moral victories, but if the Knights somehow won a game against Oklahoma, that would be, that would be big because they've only lost twice all year. And again, it's been a great season for the Knights. Uh, Coach Cindy Baumalone has done a great job with that program. They played a hard schedule uh, before the conference season in fact, they, the team they lost to, Michigan, was they beat them twice here in the regional. So you could see how this the competition early in the season uh, yielded great results for them down the road. And they got it done. A dramatic Saturday victory when they had to come from behind to beat Michigan uh, and win in extra innings. And then Sunday, they took care of business from the get-go. Uh, and again, Oklahoma tough to beat, but the one thing that does give me a little bit of hope, you know, UCF has two very good pitchers. They really have two aces. So as great an offensive juggernaut that Oklahoma is, you know, pitching wins in, 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 in tournament baseball. Again, our fingers are crossed. Go Knights, charge on. It is my pleasure to welcome to the show this week. We're going to delve off a little differently than our normal path. We're going to talk about some winter Olympic sports, bobsledding and curling. And I've got two guests that I'm uh, glad to have on here. And and the first one is kind of like starting a new series here from my day job. Uh, John and I work together at, at launch that John Macchione uh, is here as well as uh, one of his uh, friends, Mallory C., uh, both are bobsledders and curlers, so this will this be a lot of fun. I just want to thank you both for being here. Yeah, thanks for having us, Jeff. Thank you. Yeah, this is awesome. Uh, so first, let's talk about bobsledding. So tell me where you grew up, and how did you become attracted to the sport of bobsledding? 
Oh, that's a good one. Um, so I grew up in New Jersey originally, played soccer my whole life, along with a variety of sports. Um, didn't really consider bobsledding until post-college. Um, so I went to George Washington, same college as Alana Myers-Taylor. And I think it was coming to the 2014 Olympics, just kept hearing about her. I'm looking at the sport, I'm like, I'm really good at driving things, and I had big, powerful legs. It seems like this might be a fit. Uh, so I got in touch with her. She put me in touch with the coaches. I did some combines, did a driver school. And uh, yeah, just kind of that's how I got into the sport. Yeah, yeah. I grew up um, between Indiana and Florida. I went back and forth as a kid and I grew up in figure skating. So kind of always an ice sport person <laughs> at heart. Um, but I actually didn't play any sports in college. I'm kind of the minority of bobsledders where I played no sports in college. I was a theater kid. Um, <laughs> and at post-college, I tried uh, CrossFit to get fit and started competing in CrossFit and powerlifting. Saw so some CrossFitters kind of try out bobsled. And I was like, well, I'm the right size. Why not? Like, gave it a go. Auditioned last year and started racing uh, in December. And this is going into my second season now. Wow, that's incredible. So, uh, so you know, we watched this on TV, uh, you know, during the Olympics and things like that. And it's not like they just uh, stick you in a, in, a, in, a, in a sleigh and push you down the hill. What goes in to maneuvering a bobsled? Oh, man. So the maneuvering part, well, I mean, first off, uh, your very first run down the track, it is kind of a little bit like that. It's here's a sled. You're at the top of the hill. You're going to end up at the bottom of the hill. Um, a little bit more to it <laughs> than that, but not too much. Um, but in terms of maneuvering a bobsled, so, you know, there's some key elements. So obviously there's the start. The start, it gives you all your momentum. You know, it's not like a car where you can press a gas or a brake pedal. The only gas pedal you press is how fast you push the start before uh, the sled before you get into it. Um, and then when you're going down the run, you know, the brakemen, brake women like Mallory, um, ideally they're just sitting there as low as they can in the middle of the sled, not moving. Um, as a driver, we hold two D rings that are connected um, via ropes to a front axle. And that turns the runners, which are, um, they're like rounded metal, I don't know, long pieces. I, I'm not quite like a skate because they're not sharp but they're rounded. Um, so we turn those and the G forces, basically the centrifugal force of going through the turn that pushes us into the ice and it gives us a, a form of grip. Um, as opposed to like when we're going on a, just a flat straight section, we don't have that grip. So if you steer the sled during that time, it kicks you sideways or if a brakeman decides to move in the back of the sled, they'll kick it sideways as well. And, uh, yeah, once again, there's no gas pedal, there's no brake pedal. So if you're going sideways, you're not entering a turn properly. It just kind of cascades over time and like it just becomes a worse and worse and worse run. And that's how you end up with crashes. Um, so everything is a very kind of fine maneuver. And where does the braking come in? <laughs> very end, the very end. So um, oftentimes, like I'll have to count how many curves were in the track because I can't always hear my pilot yell break. I can't rely solely on her being like break because it's loud. So sometimes I can't hear. So I have to feel where we are in the track and know, okay, we finished that last curve. We're just over the finish line. And then I sit up and hit the brakes and hold on to them. Cause sometimes it's a, it's a fight with those brakes. <laughs> <laughs> and what kind of, what kind of speed are we talking about here? 
So, I mean, Park City, Utah, we would hit um, about 90 miles an hour. So I think Whistler is actually the fastest track in the world. I don't think the Beijing track beats it. Um, I think Whistler capped out around 94. Um, so, I mean, you're, it's, it's high speed, but it's not just the speed, um, but it's honestly, it's the G-forces. So, you know, Park City turned six, we would get, I think, 6.2, 6.3 G-forces, which, I mean, you know, your head weighs a couple of pounds, plus you got a helmet that weighs a couple of pounds on top of that. So multiply that by six, that's how much weight your neck's supporting. Um, so it, it is, that's honestly the most significant part, especially as a pilot. Um, you know, we study the tracks so well, we know every inch of it, um, that time almost kind of seems to slow down a little bit when you're driving down the track. So, you know, the speed, I mean, when you're looking at it from the outside, it goes really fast as a driver, you're kind of like, you know what to expect. You see it coming ahead of time, but it's really the G force is that, um, there's nothing that compares to it. Yeah. The pilots, uh, have to keep their head up with those G forces. My face hits the floor. So I don't have to worry about supporting my neck. My face literally will hit the floor and I just kind of sit there like, are we done? (laughs) (laughs) It is very fascinating. So obviously, you know, you mentioned earlier, you know, you can crash. What's Mm -hmm. the worst crash you've ever had? Um, So for me, it was probably actually a U.S. team trials practice run, not a race run. Um, I crashed in Lake Placid. It was coming out of turn 12, I believe it is. It's a um, so there's a really big turn called Shady that, you know, that's a pretty easy one. Then you go. It's into 11. Shady's 11. I can't remember which one it is, but Shady's Shady's 10. So, yeah, going to 11. That's the left hand turn there. And if you don't line it up properly, you'll end up going into 12 really, really, really late. Now, when you go into a turn late, it means at the point where you should be turning, you're not on the turn yet. So you're still going straight. You kind of shoot up to the top. So I came late to 12 and I actually steered so hard that I actually tipped the sled going into the turn. And so we, uh, I was riding on my head for a little bit because my head got stuck out. And that's kind of the key thing as a driver, you know, your head is outside the sled. You are the tallest part of the vehicle um so you know brakemen they're in there and like once they're kind of over ideally they're safe uh they they can stay off the ice a little bit better than the drivers with a driver if your head's stuck out of the ice you're just you're riding along you're seeing all this ice going past you at you know 80 miles an hour whatever it is um just you're along for the ride but uh the worst part though is when you kind of reach the high point because all the tracks end going up because it's gravity sport so once you reach kind of that that high point you then start going backwards and you keep kind of going back and forth until you end up stopping the lowest part of the track. So that was probably the worst crash I had was that one. Um, I also did a barrel roll once, um, also in Lake Placid and, uh, that you're not really supposed to be able to do barrel rolls, but it just happened to crash it the right way that our sled just rolled and just kept going. Then we were on our runners going up the course again. And, uh, that was an entertaining one. <laughs> Mallory, how about you? Oh, so we were in Innsbruck, Austria. And we, my pilot had crashed out of curve nine and we were completely upside down for a while. So just the tops of our head were touching. Not bad. I was like, okay, if we're going to crash, this isn't it. But then our sled flipped back over and I got thrown from the sled, but my foot was stuck in the back of her seat. So I could not fully push out of the sled and get out on the side of the track, nor could I pull myself back in. So that forward, back, forward, I was drug with my head hitting the wall and like literally my entire torso and butt out of the sled, just being pinned on against the wall, being drugged. 
And I think that's the only time I really like cried. I got out of the sled and I was just like, <gasps> and she's like, why didn't you push out? I'm like, my foot's stuck in your seat. Like I can't get it out. <laughs> so, so, so what's worse, not being able to see it coming or, you know, <laughs> my pilot will say I have it worse. She's like, I know when I'm about to crash and I can duck in. She's like, you just kind of have to be like, Oh, there's ice on my shoulder. Now. I think we flipped. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think it depends on the size of the person a little bit. Cause uh, yeah, I'm a taller, I'm probably on the taller side for what pilots were. And uh, you know, Smaller ones, they can always tuck in, like kind of hide under the front of the sled. If you're on the taller side, it depends how fast you crash. Yeah. So you mentioned, uh, you know, having strong legs. I trust that's the the, the part you work on the most uh, in getting in shape for the yeah, sport. It, it, it's it's strength. It's really power and speed. Um, you, you need to be strong. You need to push. Um, you know squat big amounts power clean uh, big amounts um so it's that combination of speed and strength a really strong person if they're slow isn't going to make it and vice versa you could be extremely fast but if you're not that strong and powerful you're not going to make it either you got to have that right balance mallory same for 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 females as for a male yeah, no, it's definitely it's definitely the same. I think the female side we get away a little bit more with less strength, just with the speed option. Um, especially on the pilot side, they they definitely get more leeway. They're really able to be fast and good drivers, and the strength they can work on later. Um, I I definitely am one of the stronger ones, but not as fast when I started because I didn't run track like everybody else did. So <laughs> I'm playing catch up on the speed. <laughs> so you can get faster. <laughs> you can, you oh, can. Yeah, and it, yeah it, it's hard. It's really hard, but it's definitely possible. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, being this is a, you know, a winter Olympic sport, you know, you know, compared to other sports, it's not, it's not like you're signing with a, with a, with a team, they back up a Brinks truck of money and that's what you do all the time. You know, I trust, you know, in an Olympic sport, you know, you've got, you, you got families, you've got responsibilities. Uh, you know, what is it like? What, what is the, you know, what is the give and take that has to go on for you to participate at a high level in this sport? Oh, that is a good question. One that doesn't get addressed too often. Um, you know, for me, I, you know, finished college. I pursued bobsledding about a year after that or so, or two years after that. And, um, you know, left my marketing career behind, moved out to Utah and was like, hey, I'm going to see if I can make this work. Um, yeah, I was working basically three part-time jobs because it's near impossible to do a normal kind of nine to five gig when, uh, you're training, you know, twice a day, whether it be lifting or at the track or push track or something like that. Um, so, you know, maintaining all those jobs and training, I mean, I was scheduled from 5am through 9.30pm. I mean, you could say I was scheduled all 24 hours because sleep was on my schedule. Um, <laughs> and that's something you can get away with not doing when you're kind of a normal office worker. Um, so that's kind of the biggest thing, too. I mean, I have, you know, vivid memories of going around the Sundance Film Festival, Park City, um, handing out flyers, just being, trying to collect donations and doing whatever I could to, you know, raise the funds necessary because it's expensive. Uh, USA Bobsled put out a stat recently. It takes about $35,000 a year to properly support an athlete, uh, which is a ton. And when you're a driver, you know, not only are you responsible for your training and your fees and all that, but you have to rent your sled for the season. You have to buy runners, you know, four man, two man, different um, widths for different weather. So it, it gets very expensive very, very quickly. And you, know, you can't 
necessarily have a normal career where you can make a lot of money while also doing this. Mallory, what kind of sacrifices do you have to make? It's hard. Um, So I had a lovely career as a zookeeper um, and it was heartbreaking to leave that um, behind, but I I simply didn't make enough money and I didn't have enough flexibility to do both. Um, So I work a full-time nine to five job and I also work like three to four side gigs at a time while training while taking care of seven animals at home (laughs) while trying to travel. Um, so yeah, I am scheduled like every second of the day and I still don't have enough money. So (laughs) we're thriving. It's, it's a sport where you're, you're struggling, but it's, it's worth it. It's well worth it. It just, it sucks. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, so tell me about the seven pets because I can relate to this. (laughs) I have four dogs and three cats. Um, (laughs) Three of my dogs are elderly, little grumpy old men, and <laughs> they are, uh, they definitely fill the void of zookeeping, for sure. I have my own <laughs> zoo at home. <laughs> I've had as many as seven. Uh, you know, right now we got four cats and a dog, so I know yeah. <laughs> what it's like to have a, have a, have a herd of animals. It's, uh, it's, yeah. it's uh, quite entertaining, uh, nonetheless. And what is the, what is the big, other than more people, what is the biggest difference between two man and four man? Uh, so I guess kind of the way to think of it is imagine you're driving, I don't know, a vehicle on a snowy road um, and you have a you know high horsepower sports car versus a truck. You know, the truck weighs more. It's a little bit more predictable. The sports car, you step on the gas pedal too hard. It's going to move sideways a little bit. And that's probably the kind of best comparison if the sports car is the two man sled, because, you know, yeah, it's nice and fast. It's like a little more aerodynamic but it also weighs a lot less. So, you know, when you're in a gravity sport where everything depends upon pressure and kind of the weight being pushed into the ice for your grip, having less weight, it's a little less, um, it, it's different. It's, it's not as direct as the foreman. Flip side of that is just a little bit more agile. Um, where the four-man sled, you know, kind of what I was talking about before, if you mess up a turn going to the next one, it makes it difficult for you. Four-man, um, you have to be smooth. You have to kind of hit your lines properly because it's more difficult to save if you do mess something up. And then on top of that, there's monobob for the women's side. I, I got to try those uh, like a couple times with the Paralympic athletes around. But, uh, yeah, monobob is something else as well. Um, you know, one person, they're even less weight. So, I mean, I don't know that I feel like that's compared to like driving like a go-kart or something. Those things are, they're a little, they're so much fun, but uh, they're wild. Natalie, give me your thoughts yeah. on that. I mean, I, women only get monobob and two man. So we are not allowed to do four man yet, which is a bummer, you know, equality we should be, but we're not allowed to. So I just do two woman bobsled cause I don't drive. So I get to watch Mono Bob, which I call Lonely Bob, because I just sit there and like watch my pilot go. And I'm like, I hope you're having a good time. <laughs> I'm eating snacks while you do this training run. I'll see you later for our two men. <laughs> John, which one do you prefer, the two or the four? Oh, that's a good question. Um, training wise, two, because it's a lot easier to find one brakeman instead of three. Uh, racing wise, I probably did lean a little bit more towards the four man. Okay. Okay. So, is there any great highlight of your bobsledding careers that uh, that stands out? Oh, great highlights. I mean, I feel like this is cheating, but if I just say like the whole experience, I mean, I, I'm 
been retired for a couple of years now, but, um, you know, just from day one of just getting to go do this crazy thing that other people don't get to do and just taking my first run down the track and just being like, man, there's no training wheels. Like I'm on a track driving a bobsled and like, I've been doing this for all of, you know, hours. Um, and, you know, I had some phenomenal coaches, um, you know, both silver medalists, um, you know, in the Torino games, um, Sean Aerobic and Valerie Fleming, uh, and just, you know, working with them consistently, again, work with coaches like Brian Scheimer and all those folks, um, getting to meet, you know, I mean, I knew Alana, meeting Alana and just all the other people. It's, it's such an interesting community because you have so many people that are just so passionate about one thing that the rest of the world only cares about every four years. Um, so I, mean, I know it's not necessarily like a fair highlight, but uh, just the experience as a whole was just absolutely incredible. Yeah. Um, for me, I, I think our first successful run down the track. So <laughs> my very, my very first two times in the bobsled. So like very first two times ever we crashed. So I had not experienced not crashing until my second day in bobsled. And it was like, I, it was euphoria. Cause I was like, oh, we did it. Like we made it down. Like this was amazing. My mom was there. I was like, mom, we did it. Like it was so, it was hilarious. Like we were not going that fast. We were, I walked the sled, like it was really slow, but we just, we had to qualify for a race. So we were super cautious. We just needed to get down and that's all we needed to do. And we did it. And it was the best thing ever. So you didn't have any reservations after crashing twice. You were determined to do this. No, they like, they kept everybody who had the veterans on the team kept looking at me. They're like, you're tough. And I'm like, I came from zookeeping. Like <laughs> this sucks, but like, I don't know. I've been bit by all sorts of things. <laughs> and like kicked in the face. Like I, it's like, y'all need to hire more zookeepers for this. Cause we're tough as nails. <laughs> oh, it, it, it is very entertaining when you see like brakemen who are with drivers that crash a little more frequently. Um, there was this, uh, one Jamaican bobsledder who was in Utah pretty frequently that I trained with and his driver, she crashed quite a bit. And he would wear football pads in the back of the sled, which I can promise you normal drive, normal brakemen do not do. Um, but man, he would go in that sled run after run after run. And I'm just like, D -d -d there's either something wrong with him or he is just like the bravest guy I know. Um, but then, I look like the Michelin man. I pad up. I'm like, I know we're going to crash at least once. Like I'm bubble wrapped. <laughs> Does extra weight cause issues though? So by doing that. Extra weight is actually an advantage. Okay. So um, the sports, all the categories have different weight maximums. Um, so you have you know, a minimum weight that the sled has to have, uh, but you also have to have a maximum. So um, that is you know, sled plus people plus their helmets and uh, just everything that goes into and football it. Pads. <laughs> <laughs> football pads and cleats and every, every little bit of the counts. Um, because you know, since it's a gravity sport, Theoretically, the heavier you are, the faster you go down the sled. Um, so if your team as a whole is underweight, you can actually put weights in the sled to move it around to give you advantages if you need it in certain areas. Um, but I mean, I'd say more frequently than not, it's actually the opposite problem of trying to make sure you're underweight, um, at least with some of the older sleds if you use them. I mean, I remember oh. before one race, we're like trying to calculate how much does hair weigh to see if you all need to shave our heads <laughs> to make sure we're underweight. <laughs> Yeah, that's that for race like practice. I'm padded up, and I'm probably about ten pounds heavier than race day, where I have not eaten, 
I've probably sat in a sauna. I've probably been spitting into a cup and, like, <laughs> and I'm just in the speed suit and hoping that we make weight because I'm, I'm on the heavier side and she's got a heavier sled. So we are pushing it every time. <laughs> hmm. Okay. Well, I tell you what, this, uh, this has taught me a lot uh, about, you know, the sport of bobsledding. So now both of you are into curling and, you know, I'm again, like most people, you see this every four years on the Olympics. Um, and of course it's one of those things. It's, it's like when you come across it, you you stop and you watch. Mm-hmm. It's very fascinating, very captivating, and it's, and it's very interesting. The the bar I hang out on Saturday afternoon with my buddies, you know, we'll, we'll watch this, and of course, nobody really knows the rules. And it's well, you got to do this with the stone or that with the stone, and and you know, and I pick up on the rules, but then I probably forget them, you know, fifteen minutes later. Uh, so, tell me how you got interested in in doing curling, uh, first of all. Yes. Yeah, so um, when I first saw the opportunity to do curling. So I, I did some volunteer at events at the uh, Olympic Oval in Salt Lake City, Utah, where they do speed skating and those things. And I saw the curling, you know, marks on the ice and I was like, oh yeah, it's a sport of sweeping everything. So it convinced two of my buddies, uh, the guy who I was staying with at the time and uh, my buddy, Andrew Blazer, who just got to represent the U.S. in skeleton. Uh, so shout out to Andrew. Um, we all went down to the Olympic Oval, tried it, and actually had a wonderful time doing it. Um, I mean, it is, it's a bizarre sport, but like, it's one bobsledding. Everyone, if you're adventure, should try it. Curling, just everyone should try it. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I am a fan of all Olympic sports. Clearly, I'm going to try them all at some point, I guess. But <laughs> I was so focused on training for bobsled that it started to become not fun because I was getting paranoid about my ranking. I was getting, you know, where do I stand? What is all this? So I was like, I need an activity to take me away from bobsled mentally. I like need to find something that's fun and just enjoyable. Um, and I found curling in Orlando. <laughs> I was like, why not? <laughs> Of all places to find it, right? Yeah, yeah. Very obviously, we're the curling capital of the world right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's even the funnier part of it. That's where Mallory and I met. Like, I didn't know she existed until she just nope. showed up at the curling rink. And I'm just like, wait, there's another bobsledder here. Like, first off, you don't run into bobsledders in the wild. And second off, you don't run into bobsledders at curling in Orlando. <laughs> just not a thing. <laughs> no, so weird. <laughs> all right. So tell me the objective in in some insight into how the scoring works. Can you kind of break that down for us? Yeah. So the scoring is surprisingly simple. Um, It's probably the most simple part of the game. So, you know, there's um, different rings, four foot, eight foot, 12 foot, and that's called the house. And then in the middle of all those rings is a pin. Um, It's called the button. So the objective is to have your rocks closer to the button than the other team. Um, so let's say you have two rocks closer to the button, then the opponent has a rock, and then you have one further out of that. You would have two points because it's basically however many you have that are closer than the opponent's closest rock. Um, it gets a little bit more complicated in that. So, you know, you throw eight rocks per end, at least in four person. There is uh, mixed doubles as well. It's, the rules are slightly different, uh, but scoring is still kind of the same. Um, so it's really advantageous to be the team throwing second. Um, then you have the very last rock of the end. So it's kind of like offense and defense, but you know, defense quote unquote, um, can still score by being the closest one and essentially putting their rocks in a position where the 
team with the hammer just cannot get the other team's rocks out. And what is the what is the the toughest part? Is it playing defense or playing offense? It's it's you have to do both effectively. Um, so you go through um, ends, which are essentially kind of like innings in baseball, mm-hmm. and the hammer switches between the two teams, assuming that there was uh, that the team with the hammer scored. Um, I will say the toughest part. I think it, it's a mix of the strategy and executing the strategy. You know, curling is a lot like chess. But if like every third move, a piece moved like an extra spot randomly, um, it, it's a big variable part. So you have, you know, the two front. So each person throws two stones per end. So you have the kind of the front end, which are your first two people, um, your lead, your second. Then the third person is the vice, um, who they're kind of like the assistant captain. Then the person that throws last is the skip. Um, so Skip's really the one who's like playing the chess game. Everyone else is trying to make the pieces move as the Skip says. Um, and there's about, you know, with professionals, it's about a 70% chance that they actually execute upon it properly. At our level, it's like 30% chance. Um, so, yeah, when I'm skipping, I'm planning. I'm like, okay, if we miss, what happens? And like, So do we plan for like a good miss or do we go for the tough shot? Um so, I mean, that's probably the toughest part is just kind of getting it all together. Now, yeah, give me your thoughts. Definitely the strategy. I'm still learning, like, how to plan shots and kind of how to skip on my own um, and learning all of that. Honestly, for me, the hardest part is either not launching the stone way into space <laughs> or throwing it too light and it doesn't get where I need to go. I'm still trying to figure out like how to get it exactly where we want it, the right amount of weight, the right amount of give. Cause yeah, I can put bobsled legs into it and then go through the backboards and we won't <laughs> see the stone again. So, and that's not effective for anybody. <laughs> yeah. It's fine. Most people, when they start off, they, they struggle to get the stone to like, to reach the house. Uh, Mallory and I both definitely had the opposite problem where we have the strong legs. So we're just like, Oh wait, we're throwing it way too hard. So I mean, like it's on ice. So like, it, it's a 42 pound stone on ice. So it slows down, but it's still on ice. So it takes a while to slow down. Um, so if you just give it too much, you know, weight at the front, which is basically weight is equivalent to like speed, how fast you throw it. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause it's, it's all momentum. Um, so if you give it too much, you, you cannot slow it down versus the flip side is you throw it light, you know, you can sweep really, really, really hard and try to carry it a little further than it would go without you sweeping. Yes. So talk about sweeping. So, you know, that's, uh, that is also a very fascinating aspect uh, of that. So give me the strategy behind what takes place there. So with sweeping, um, it, it, it's all about communication. I mean, if you want to hire someone to like run a meeting for your company, get a curler. Um, because <laughs> they're taught you're communicating the entire time. With bobsled, you got the brakeman in the back, and they're just like, I hope we don't crash. And the driver up front being like, I'm going to try to make us not crash. Um, with curling, it's you're constantly communicating where you think the stone's going to end up, how the curl's going. Does it need to move more? Does it need to move less? And, you know, what do we need to do? Do we need to carry it further or, tr- you know, get off it so it stops sooner? Um, so, you know, as soon as the, um, the thrower, the person delivering the stone, releases it. They'll communicate to their um, 
to their sweepers, you know, what they think it needs. Like, does it need sweeping? Does it need them to be off? Then kind of the middle portion, the skip kind of sees how it's coming. The sweepers, they're identifying how fast it's coming in. So they'll communicate to the skip. Okay, here's where we think it's going to go. The skip is watching the curve where it's going to go along with listening to this information. So, you know, a throw is probably about, you know, dedicated ice is probably about 20 seconds or so. Um, we're on arena ice, so it, it's a bit slower. So we have to throw it harder. So the end happens a little bit faster. Um, but on dedicated ice, I mean, it's just it's constant communication for the amount of time the stone's moving. So the sweeping affects both the speed and direction. Yeah, exactly. Um, so you know, this it's all about kind of friction. Um, the speed you sweep at is actually more impactful than the kind of weight you put into it or the power that you're putting into um, the ice. So, but that being said, you have more power when you have the broom closer to you. So when you kind of have it further out, you're away from you, you're putting less into it. So let's say you're on the left side and you're sweeping harder. You're actually going to cause the stone to kind of stay a little bit more towards the right because you're reducing friction on the left-hand side. Um, and then, But either way, you know, even just through sweeping, you're going to help it move a little bit farther. So as the skip, that's one of the most difficult parts of you need to try to correct the line and the weight at the same time. And sometimes you're like, okay, the weight's good, but I need to curl more, but you know, you you can only tell your team to do so much on it because if you do too much, it could ruin the other aspect of it. Yeah. I, I like sweeping a lot. It's probably one of my favorite parts <laughs> of the sport. I'll still get bruises though. Cause I'll be like leaning on the broom trying to just go and I'll get bruises in my armpits and like on my ribs from just how hard I'm <laughs> sweeping the broom. <laughs> So, so, uh, so yeah, I was going to add that be my ask. So do you, do you switch doing both roles or are you dedicated to one? So everyone kind of does a bit of everything. The only person who doesn't sweep is the skip, but even they do some sweeping because, so they're at the back of the house that everyone's trying to deliver it to. So if, after contact has been made, if your stone's moving, you can sweep your own stone or if a opponent stone is in the back half of the house, you can sweep that as well. So skips, even though they're not doing like the traditional sweeping down the entire lane, um, they can still do some sweeping as well. So everyone kind of does a bit of everything and everyone, you know, delivers the stones. And I would also say, you know, based on what you've described, this is more physical than one would think. Oh yeah. I, I mean, it's, um, you know, in a two-hour session, I'll burn, you know, 1,200, 1,300 calories if I'm sweeping. If I'm skipping, I'll burn like 400. Um, so you can definitely tell kind of who's doing a bit more of the work there. But it, it is a hefty workout. But at the same time, it's it's as athletic as you want it to be. You know, there are plenty of people who they throw the stone and, you know, maybe they walk with it and they'll sweep a little bit. And like, that's kind of all they do. But, you know, I'll say probably most of the curlers I've met are probably above 50 years old. Um, and, you know, they're just out there having a good time. And then you got the kind of the younger folk like me and Mallory who are like, we want to give this 110% effort and we're going to sweep until our hands fall off. Um, so it's interesting because you often end up on teams with mixes of the different kinds of people. So you figure out, okay, who wants to do what? What are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? Yeah, it's, it's definitely, I like the mixture of people and I think it kind of keeps me level because I like showed up and I was like, oh, I'm not bad at this. Okay, new Olympic sport, like 2030, let's go. And I was like, wait, this is, 
Well, and what's, what's like this, really nice this is supposed to be fun <laughs> yeah and what's really really nice about curling which i have not experienced I, i've done a ton of sports i've never experienced this anywhere is after you play against a team in a game um the winning team buys beers for the losing team you all just kind of sit at a table and chat and it, it is the weirdest thing to me to like socialize with these people that you were just trying to figure out how you can beat them and everything and it's just it's such a nice way it keeps the community kind of so tight-knit um, the first time I did it, I was like, this is absolutely bizarre. Like we just lost these guys. I'm kind of pissed that we lost and we got to chat with them. But then if you get chat with them, you're like, Hey, these are actually cool people who have the same interest. We do like, it, it makes sense. And why don't we do this more often in other sports? No, it is the friendliest sport. It is yeah. awesome. <laughs> so where do you curl in Orlando? So we're down at, um, Oh goodness. What is it called? The ice factory down in Kissimmee. Um, but I mean, there's clubs all over. There's a club in Jacksonville. There's a club in Miami. There's a club in Tampa Bay area. Um, I think Florida as a whole, I think it's like seven different clubs. Um, Orlando is definitely the most active, but you know, there's a surprising amount of clubs all over the country. Um, not just the Northern States, but all over. Um, yeah. yeah. So, so, you know, you say you you guys you know play against other teams, all that. Now, do you have a dedicated team each week, or do you have to pair up with different people all the time? Or, uh, yeah, no. So we um, you know, we mix it up. So when we're just practicing, having fun, we kind of see like, okay, who's there this morning? We curl like seven fifteen a.m. because um, that's when we can get ice for cheap. Uh, but you know, we just we pick from whoever's doing it. And then when we're planning to go compete at a bonch spiel, is it called? Uh, it's basically the equivalent of a tournament. Um, you know, we'll pick a team. We'll try to practice a couple times ahead of time. So Mallory and I are actually representing Orlando as part of our conferences championship, um, along with my wife and one of our other teammates who has been curling since God, it's gotta be at least 20 years for Eric. Um, so we got, you know, <laughs> three newbies and one experienced guy, um, but you know, we all have picked up the sport really quickly. So, you know, we should have a good chance there and it's nice being able to practice with the same people consistently. Uh, but at the same time, it's nice having those sessions where you're just like, we're just going to curl with random people, develop a good relationship and have fun with it. Yeah, no, you get, you get to meet everybody. I think though, probably in the near future, John and I are going to start doing mixed doubles matches oh, yeah. <laughs> just because with Bob's letter, like we're, we're hanging out with each other anyways. We might as well turn it into a competitive sport. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, why not? So uh, when is this uh, competition you're about to take place? Uh, oh, it's th- three weeks away now uh, up in New Hampshire. So, you know, we're all flying on up there, staying at a, uh, well, I can't remember. It was like the University the Plymouth of State. Plymouth yeah, State. Plymouth State dorm rooms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice nice yeah. well hey I, I wish you luck with all that i think i hope hope you can come back with uh, uh as victors that would be great uh but i'm sure you'll enjoy uh, enjoy the experience nonetheless one way or the other oh yeah we'll, we'll try to represent the sunshine state on ice <laughs> absolutely <laughs> oh. well john mallory i do appreciate you taking the time this has been very educational a lot of fun and uh again good luck in your competition and uh and, and thanks again for being here Yeah, thank you very much, Jeff. It was a pleasure. Thank you. It was awesome. Okay, let's close things out now with a TV theme. Never brought up 
the theme from Webster, which aired on ABC from September 1983 to May of 1987, and then in first-run syndication after being canceled by the network, it ran in syndication from September 87 to March of 89. The show stars Emmanuel Lewis in the title role as a young boy after losing his parents is adopted by his NFL pro godfather, portrayed by Alex Karras, of course, the one-time Great Detroit Lion defensive uh, Detroit Lion defensive lineman uh, and one-time member of the ABC Monday Night Football booth, and his new socialite wife, played by Susan Clark. The focus largely on how this impulsively married couple had to adjust to their new lives and sudden parenthood. But the congenial Webster himself, who was the one who drove much of the plot of the show, often the show was uh, considered a knockoff of NBC's Different Strokes with child actor Gary Coleman, and of course they put uh, Emmanuel Lewis in the lead role. Emmanuel, Emmanuel Lewis had actually not grown much taller uh, than uh, than his size when he was in the TV series. Uh, he's in the four-foot range, um, and so and there's no uh, no medical reason why he, he didn't grow. Uh, he's in his 50s now, believe it or not, so and only six inches taller than when he was a, a child actor. And again, uh, uh, it was, uh, you know, that that was kind of the rage back then, having the child stars uh, on these TV shows. Webster, our TV theme for this week. And with that, we are done here. Thanks for listening to Jeff Allen Sports Talk. Follow Jeff on Twitter at JeffAllen underscore 88, on Facebook at JeffAllen88, and the website JeffAllenSportsTalk.com. And you can reach out to the show anytime by email, JeffAllenSportsTalk at gmail.com. Jeff Allen Sports Talk is brought to you exclusively by Kramer's Salve for Dogs. Does your dog itch, suffer from debilitating skin allergies, or trouble hot spots? We have the solution using the healing power of neem. Kramer's Salve is a safe and natural approach to help your best friend live an itch-free life. Go to KramerSalve.net to order today with new low pricing. That's K-R-A-M-E-R-S-A-L-V-E dot net.